Well, good morning. How's the sound there? So, okay, good. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tony Bernhardt. I'm a friend of Sylvia's, and I fill in when she's off having a good time somewhere else. Uh, occasionally I do. So, um, I guess I, I might make one other announcement. That, that is, my wife will be here on the 18th. For those of you who are interested in seeing her, she will be here. She and Sylvia will be uh, sharing the Dharma seat, and Tony will be talking about her new book, which is... I just saw it in the bookstore, so that was... Mm-hmm. Very pleasant. I thought I would start this morning by by recounting something that happened to me when I was in high school. It was I was about seventeen or so, which would have been around nineteen sixty, and teenage culture at that time centered fairly heavily on car culture. Any, anybody who remembers, you know, people were. Kids paid a lot of attention to their cars, and there was a lot of rebuilding of cars and painting of cars, and it was a, a place, car was a place to be free from parents. And um, But I was sort of not into that scene. I think I was probably a bit more, well, I was interested in astronomy and photography more than cars. But my friends and I thought, what could be so hard about cars? I mean, you know. So we went out, my my best friend at the time and I went out in, in front of my house and we opened the hood on my parents' 1952 Chrysler and looked in. I had no idea what we were looking at. We, we st- actually started laughing after about 10 seconds because it was just this lump of metal. You know, I had no idea. Sort of like today, you look under there and you go, what is all this stuff? But at that point, it was it was pretty simple. There was a lot of empty space, and there was this big lump of metal. I could, I could have identified plastic and wires. You know, I could have said wires. Uh, fan, I could have gotten fan, and I would have felt really good about fan belt. <laughs> but otherwise, I had... We, I had no idea what I was looking at. I had no concepts to articulate the experience, the visual experience I was having. I just had no idea what I was looking at. It's similar, it reminds me of a friend of mine who was talking about a friend of his, who, a, a Tibetan, who's been learning English who said he was amazed at how many emotions he had that he had no idea about until he started learning English. You know, we are with emotions the way Eskimos are to snow. You know, they, you know, we just go snow and they just go pleasant, unpleasant, pretty much liking, you know, happy, unhappy. But we, we, uh, dote on the dis- the discriminations and it and and having those concepts enables us to distinguish experience in ways that um, we might not other otherwise be you know there's there's a sense sometimes that the goal of practice is to somehow make thinking stop, not pay attention to the concepts that we use to to uh find our way through the world. In Zen, there's a saying, Zen is a finger pointing at the moon. And of course, that comes with a warning not to mistake the finger for the moon. But these concepts are pointing at our experience and helping us distinguish subtleties and nuances that might otherwise arise and pass and not not be noticed. This is a a really uh, central part of right view, which is the first element on the Eightfold Path and and right understanding. Um, Classically, right understanding, right view, means to understand the Four Noble Truths. 
and it sort of gets left at that, you know, and we know the truths sort of are, you know, this is suffering, this is the cessation, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path to the end. But it's not articulated often as, you know, Philip Moffat has a, has a great book, uh, Dancing with Life, is that the title of it? I think that's the title of it. You know, going into some detail on, on the four truths. Um, but there's not a lot of articulation. Like there wasn't for me when I looked in, under the hood of the, the car. I, I didn't know distributor or distributor cap. I didn't even... I, I knew wires, but I, I'd heard of spark plugs. I had no idea what I... You know, engine block was even. I just the truths actually the the language that we use to describe them. I've I've kind of stopped thinking of them as as truths myself um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, in the in the, the canon in the scriptures, the formula is repeated scattered throughout the canon, such as suffering, such as the origin of su- suffering, such as the cessation, and such as the path. But it's only referred to as Arya Sacha, Arya, which is a word that refers, that is noble, or nobling, Sacha, truth, true. Uh, and it was rendered as noble truth. Some scholars render that as the truth of the noble ones or ennobling truths, the truths that ennoble one to understand. Uh, But truth actually becomes sort of as opposed to false. And I think of them now as, and metaphysical in a sense, you know, this is the the truth of suffering. But, but, but I've come to think of them more as just the, the Buddha's four teachings on suffering. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering, or dukkha was the word he used. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. I don't know whether that's one or two things. Sometimes people say, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end, and I'm thinking, well, that's two. And then <laughs> um, But these are these are from from as I as I relate to them now they're the, the Buddha's four teachings on on dukkha or suffering and and usually what happens is we start with um, what is dukkha we start with trying to define it and it's it's a word that some some scholars are saying now we should just nativize because one person renders it as suffering somebody else Tan Jeff who's a, a scholar monk in uh, uh, Southern California whose stuff is all over the web renders it as stress some people dissatisfaction and we're saying well what is it hmm when I was here a couple of weeks ago, I, w- I was talking about the worldly dharmas, and I think I started with a, a uh, uh, going over the first of the, the pairs of worldly dharmas, sukha and dukkha, which are generally translated as pleasant and unpleasant. And I think I talked a little bit about <clears throat> what had occurred to me as I was preparing for that talk, which sukha and dukkha. Dukkha being the unpleasant side of those pair of things, pleasure, pain. And I, I, I thought I would go and look at the list, because it's Dukkha. It's the first truth, the first teaching. And I, I went and looked at the list that the Buddha has of what is Dukkha. This is Dukkha, he said, birth. Is, is dukkha or suffering. Birth is suffering. You know, we might not remember it, but we all started by saying, no. <laughs> no. 
Mark Twain says, you know, he wonders why people rejoice at births and grieve at deaths. He said, I think it's because they're not the parties involved. (laughs) Birth is, is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Not being with what one wants is suffering. Not getting what you want. Getting what you don't want is suffering. Losing what you have that is dear, that you want, is, is suffering. Pain, sorrow, lamentation, despair are suffering. And then, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. And I looked at that list, and usually what happens is we start with, what is dukkha? Dukkha is suffering. Dukkha is stress. Dukkha is... And then we look at that list. And, you know, I've listened to people, Stephen Batchelor, I think, was puzzled at one point because birth, aging, illness, death, these seem like existential experiences, and not getting what you want seems to be of a different order. It seems to be depend on your preference and what you want. Um, Pain, sorrow, lamentation, despair, distress, these seem to be, um, we want to put an end to these things, an end to suffering. And so there's sort of a mixed bag in this list. But when I looked at it in preparation for this, this talk that I did a couple of weeks ago, what jumped out at me, par- partly and maybe probably because I was thinking about the worldly dharmas at this point, these things are all unpleasant. And so maybe instead of starting with dukkha is this and these things over here are dukkha, maybe the Buddha was giving an example. He was listing examples of experience that would be unsatisfactory, that would be suffering. And they're all unpleasant. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How does this work? And I started thinking about whether it made sense or was helpful to think of this first truth, this first teaching, as about unpleasant experience. And, you know, experience being pleasant or unpleasant is one of the Buddha's teachings in terms of the skandhas, the aggregates. Every every moment of our experience uh, is, it has a, a hedonic flavor to it. It's pleasant or unpleasant, and presumably neutral, although I think the neutral stuff is the stuff we're not paying attention to. It's just sort of my take. Um, as soon as I pay attention to it, close attention, things start to come clear. Go, yes or no? <laughs> you know, do you want this to continue or not? Um, and in the, the chain of dependent origination, uh, there's contact and ve- then Vedana, followed by Tanha. Well, Tanha is the second of the teachings. And the second of the teachings, you know, Tanha is, uh, the teaching is to be abandoned. Tanha is translated often as craving. Sometimes it's just glossed as desire. You know, in Pali there, there are more than 25 words that we sort of gloss as desire. So it's kind of difficult to, you know, we, it's, it's another one of those Eskimos in snow kind of thing. We've got one word, and and in Pali and Sanskrit, there's a there's a, a whole range of them, and so we you know we think well yeah desire, you know, not good. But then you got to have desire for awakening, right? But really, in the Pali, there are different there are different kinds of desire. Tanha, it seems to me, 
that you know the, the Buddha identified three three kinds, and it seems to me that rather than these things being elements of our choice, of our preference, desire in the sense I want an ice cream, um, <laughs> that just that's just what I wanted at the moment there. Um, the, I think these these are impulses that are deeply embedded in our organism. You know, they're they're cultured in the organism by our evolution. I was thinking recently, humans have been around what hundred thousand years, give or take, and a generation is what twenty twenty five years. You know, so five generations in a hundred years, 50 generations in a thousand years, in a hundred thousand years we got five million generations. So we've had some time to culture our organisms the way they are. And over that time, those of us who had stronger impulses, survival impulses, you know, the survival instinct, those of us for whom that instinct was stronger might be more likely to survive long enough to pass on our genes. And so over time, we've got that built in. We, we all, it's not, it's not a preference, you know, it's, a, it's, it's built into the organ. It happens, just sort of like life happened to us. You know, just, we noticed it happened. No, no, nobody I know actually planned it to their knowledge. You know, it just showed up. Um, this is one of the kinds of tanha, bhava tanha, the desi- desire or, or impulse, the need. It's, a, it's an organism desire to be in the future, to survive and to survive in some fashion, to become something. So it can be just basic survival. It can also be, to, you know, survival as the owner of a Porsche Cayenne hybrid, or whatever your <laughs> your own particular uh, to be, you know, to become to become, you know, a boss or a manager or a partner or to leave a legacy. It can manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, I think in some ways just identity view, who we are in the first place. Uh, It's an idea to be something, to project something into the future. We also prefer pleasant experience. I don't think this is an accident either. This is something... You know, those of us, of our ancestors who sort of didn't care, might be more inclined to damage themselves and not survive long enough to pass on their their genes. So over, I mean, five million. There's enough chance, enough opportunity for us to culture certain, you know, dispositions. And the, the third, so kamatanha would be the second kind, or usually it's taught as the first kind, bhavatanha and vibhavatanha, which is, um, let's get out of here. It's the, the flight part of fight or flight. But it can be, let's, let's put an end to this unpleasant experience. And I think that the, the impulse in us to make our experience pleasant and uh, and to continue, I think those things are are you know we all sort of feel that stuff that's uh, built into the, to the body and mind. Now, in the second of the teachings, the second truth, tanha is to be abandoned. It's also it's also described as the origin of dukkha, and. For years, my understanding was, you got tanha, you're going to have dukkha. It causes dukkha. It's sort of billiard ball almost like, you know, it's just, you got tanha, you're going to have dukkha. 
and you know whether you but but there's been that existential issue well you're going to have illness whether you've got tanha or not right but i think if you look at these things as unpleasant as the first the list of the first the first teaching the first truth is unpleasant experience unpleasant experience is the target for tanha when and dukkha becomes a conditioned arising that occurs when you know unpleasant experience is in, is engaged by tanha pleasant experience isn't dukkha we're happy with pleasant experience losing that pleasant experience losing what we like uh, not satisfactory and when those th- when that unpleasant experience happens tanha arises and we get dukkha. It, so dukkha becomes like a like I think of it like the color green. You got yellow and you got blue, and you mix them together and you get green. You don't get the green without the yellow, and you don't get it without the blue. But the two of them, and it's the green is not yellow, even though you need the yellow, and it's not blue, even though you need the blue. It's its own arising, but it becomes something that arises and passes. It's it's not a metaphysical thing that uh, you know. It's not some. It doesn't have an essence. It's a condition arising, like all other things the Buddha pointed at. This is I I found in in following this line of thinking, I found it really helpful because. When there's frustration or um, contraction, which is I, well, I found my own experience of of uh, dukkha, um, I can distinguish the pleasant or unpleasant experience from that impulse to make it go away, to to resist it. And the third of the truths, the third teaching, is that cessation is possible and that it's the cessation is the cessation of that very craving of tanha. It's not a cessation of dukkha, which always puzzled me because wasn't this supposed to be the end of suffering? Well, it's going to be the end of the cause of suffering. But then you look at illness and death so I was always it always felt a bit muddy to me but the cessation of 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 tanha the cessation of thirsting feels like thirst you know it comes out it comes from the body this this uh, impulse to survive in a pleasant way So the third teaching is that the cessation of craving is possible. And of course, the cessation of craving, we all would experience that at times. I remember a piece that uh, Buddha Dasa, who was a, a Thai monk, who, um, who had a very interesting, very interesting career. When he started in monk school, he was, his, the first year was, he was at the head of his class in Pali studies. He, he was really good at it. The second year, he wasn't doing so well because instead of just reading the the, te- the traditional text and the and the Vasudhimagga, he went to the original Pali scriptures. And then when when the teacher would say, "The Buddha said," he'd say, "Well, wait a minute." It, it was not so popular. And when he when he when he graduated, he set up his monastery hundreds of miles from Bangkok, which at the time made it harder for the authorities to, to uh, uh, find him because, you know, in Thailand there's no separation between church and state. So, um, but he wrote a piece called Nibbana for Everyone. And he basically said, 
I remember Jack passing this out 20 years ago. He said, you know, you, um, you, we all experience moments of cessation, periods of, so we'd go crazy if we didn't. You know? And he was identifying what seems to me, you know, the, the cessation of m- moments when craving is not present. We're sitting, watching a sunset that's just the you know in Hawaii <laughs> you know the air ambient temperature is 85 and it's uh, well <laughs> and you're feeling content not, not so much dukkha at that moment you know? and and then of course you know conditions change and something unpleasant arises, there's resistance to it, there's that contraction. It's a physical thing, I can, anyway. There's there's resistance to it and dukkha. Now dukkha in this sense has a, you know, a whole range of flavors because the particular experience that's unpleasant could be one of a whole range, everything from Illness to, you know, they're being out of vanilla ice cream. At the, you know, what it, um, could be trivial, could be significant. It could be intense, it could be mild. The kind of tanha that arises may be... So the, you know, dukkha is, is, uh, has a variety of, of flavors, which is one, because it's a, you know, dependently arisen, which is one reason people have a difficulty defining it, want to define it and lock it down and figure it out, but it's it's more fluid than that. But the 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 third truth is pointing at uh, the cessation, the deliverance. The Buddha says that the of all the kinds of deliverance of mind, the unshakable deliverance of mind is the best, and that feels to me like he's talking about nibbana you know the the kind of deliverance of mind which can no longer it's unshakable the rest of us get shakable <laughs> shakable deliverance you know and we can we can work on it um, you know we can we can work on it because we're aware of, we can pay attention to the pleasant or un- unpleasant experience and the, the reactivity to it um, by being able to distinguish it conceptually, finger pointing at that particular moon. The word Naroda, which is the word that's used for the, the third teaching, means to stop leaking. It's, uh, the, the Buddha used a lot of agricultural metaphors because he was in an agricultural world. And the, the words that, that referred to the, the defilements, the cankers, the, the underlying tendencies that, you know, t- towards um, pleasant experience, um, towards clinging to views. Um, these were the word asava, which is one of the words that refers to them, is uh, effluent, leakage. So basically the Buddha's idea was we're walking around leaking <laughs> these un- unwholesome tendencies all over the world, and Naroda ends that leaking. Talked about, I think the, the word is used in describing how you would patch up the, the levees and rice paddies to keep them from leaking. So our, our view of, or my view of dukkha has changed significantly, partly also because it's not, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, some a huge portion of our unpleasant experience is not physical. It's 
it's uh, it occurs it's mental it's it occurs at the mind sense gate thoughts that arise are unpleasant and make us cringe like bombing syria you know so thought here we are sitting in a comfortable room with with pleasant company feeling you know it's not unpleasant to be here but we can think a thought and cringe you know so at the mind sense gate unpleasant thoughts arise and the resistance to it we can feel in our body you know uh, joseph uh, has described the sensation of dukkha as contraction you can actually feel a sort of a resistance you know it's that tanha it's the the impulse to make the unpleasant go away or somehow resist so a huge portion of our of our suffering comes from the chatter in our mind the mental self sense gate so so in this view pain sorrow lamentation despair wouldn't necessarily end we just would stop resisting it and making making them worse you know um grieving is natural and this was a queen victoria who who wore black for and was grieving although actually I, actually i thought maybe that was just a defensive thing if she was grieving for the loss of uh, her husband then she wouldn't nobody could talk her into uh, having to get married again so uh, but you know sorrow there's a tendency in um for people who want to get rid of that escape it in fact some of the language that's used in the scriptures to to uh uh bikobodi translates the danger the gratification the danger and escape in this world the gratification in the world being pleasant experience the danger is of course that if you cling to it you will suffer because it's in constant and the escape is the escaped into the refuge of the buddha dharma sangha stephen bachelor translates it a little bit differently he says it's the delight not just gratification it's the delight of our experience the tragedy of our experience not the danger and the liberation not the escape you know it's not so much escape it's engagement in a way that doesn't make things worse for ourselves and others and the way that that happens is is um through the cultivation of the fourth teaching which is the which is the the path it's described as the path but it's also a way of being and it's it's not eight distinct elements it's eight aspects of one element which one thing which is the way of being without uh without us uh, without craving without suffering and sometimes the teachings you know tanjeff points out that the path to the grand canyon is not the grand canyon and so the path to awakening is not the awakening but it it it's also it seems to me true that the path that walking the path that manifesting the path is the goal you know that living in accordance with with the elements of the path is the way of living without dukkha that doesn't mean you don't have unpleasant experience that doesn't mean that birth aging illness death losing what you've got that you want not getting what you want and getting what you don't want 
Not that those things don't occur, but that we don't respond to them in a way that um, creates dukkha. We don't respond to them in a way that makes things worse for ourselves and others, that create suffering for ourselves and others. And it's, a, it's not easy to do. So one of the elements of the path is effort. Because going with the flow is going with tanha. Tanha is built into the body, comes with our experience. You know, we identify with these impulses. I told you about the, in Tom Wolfe's book, I Am Charlotte Simmons, he takes you on a tour of Duke University, which and at one point he walks you into a neuroscience class and the professor is teaching and he says, we are like a pebble tossed across the room that becomes conscious halfway across the room and says, I want to go that way. Here we are and the body is doing its thing and we there's identification, the creation of a self. And I think actually that the creation of a self conceptually probably also ranks in as one of these uh, evolutionary qualities. Because the the horsepower in the brain, a great metaphor, <laughs> you know, the incredible computing power gives us the, the ability to abstract and to manipulate our environment and make us as successful as we are as a species. And the part of that and it is is identifying us and objects that we want to manipulate, that we want to adjust. And so the creation of a sense of self is you know, part of it's it's you know, the pebble tossed across the room. We learned to do it. We didn't I mean it, it happened to us. We didn't have to be taught. And then, of course, we have all kinds of ideas about who we are. Not just that we are, but who we are. But that, that, uh, so that, that sense of self is a conceptual um, arising that's skillful in terms of our survival as, a, as an organism. But it doesn't provide us with peace. It doesn't provide us with opportunities for compassion because we're thinking about ourselves and not and 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 focused on making the unpleasant go away. We don't want that unpleasant. Avija, ignorance in the in the canon means not just that we don't know something, but that we don't want to know. We sort of know. You know, this impermanence, the great impermanence, we sort of know about it, but, well, we'll deal with it later. (laughs) You know, we don't, we just don't want to know. We want to figure out how to make things more pleasant. Bhikkhu Bodhi says we spend our time trying to increase pleasant experience, decrease unpleasant experience, and figure out how all this relates to me. So this the the eightfold path is a way of being that doesn't you know that enables us to see through and and just abandon the impulses of tanha when they arise to recognize them because if we can distinguish them from just the unpleasantness of the experience we don't have this muddy notion of dukkha, suffering, pain, it's unpleasant. If we can separate that and recognize our own response to it. So the first of the elements is is right view, and that's a right viewing, skillful viewing, a viewing, a way of seeing, a way of understanding that doesn't lead us to react in ways that make things worse. The second of the of the elements is is intention, right intention. You know, 
That intention is, you know, we're talking about tanha. Tanha becomes our intention when it arises. The preference for pleasant experience, we don't wake up in the morning. We don't go to a restaurant and look at the menu and say, what do I not like here? You know, we, we just, you know, we don't say, I'm going to order the, the worst thing here. We don't wake up in the morning and figure out how to torture ourselves during Then we figure out, you know, how to make things more comfortable. That intention, that's, you know, we're talking about um, right intention is balanced against tanha. Can we see that intention? And usually, you know, unskillful intentions are, are well, they're classically described as greed, wanting, you know, that grasping, uh, ill will, and cruelty. And uh, often the, the skillful intention is j- described just as renunciation. But I think the skillful intentions are the Brahma-viharas. These are the motivating impulses of, of friendliness and compassion, joy and equanimity. So when the understanding is uh, skillful, and we see that we're not going to make ourselves happy in this life by chasing what we want, even if you do get that Porsche Cayenne hybrid. It'll be cool for just a bit. There's no lasting happiness. If you see that, then the intentions that arise will be more skillful and less likely to to cause more suffering. And suffering, again, this dukkha is is a combination of unpleasant and not wanting. When we want to relieve the suffering of another, we don't start by lecturing them about tanha. You know, we start by trying to relieve the unpleasantness. Because we can recognize that. The elements, the the other, the, the three sila elements, the elements of ethical behavior, speech, action, and livelihood. These are, these are ways of being. Um, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how in our, in our scene, meditation has become such an overwhelmingly important element when three elements of the path, speech, action, and livelihood, are about behavior off the cushion. Speech is a reflection. Speech just reflects your intention. Right? Speech is a reflection of right intention. Skillful action is often described in terms of the precepts, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. No wine at dinner. <laughs> that, that's 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 my reading of the fifth precept. <laughs> no wine. No wine at dinner. Okay. <laughs> well, there is a bit of there is a, there there is a temperance thing going. You know, a little bit of that in the in the in the culture. I actually think that that the precepts are not meant as rules of conduct. They're meant as guidelines. They're meant as they're sort of like a buoy in the in in the current. I, I remember sailing out on on the, the bay once, sailing towards Angel Island, and looked around. There were no boats or anything. I went below for a minute and came back up, and there was a buoy that was just going across my bow, maybe about twenty feet ahead. If I, if I'd been twenty feet ahead, it would have. Well, actually, I was drifting. The buoy wasn't drifting, but the buoy was a marker for me. I think the precepts serve as markers for speech, action, and livelihood. They're not rules in the sense that, you know, telling a lie, there are times when telling a lie is the most skillful thing to do. One of my, one of my friends has been doing work in hospice work for some years and 
she told me a story a while ago about a woman that she'd been attending to who was dying and um, on the, the her last day this woman looked at at her and said, you know, I know you're a Buddhist, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? And she said, of course. And she said, you could just see the woman relax because she'd become fond of of her friend and was afraid that her friend was going to hell. And so the kind thing to do, the kind thing to do, was not to launch into, you know, and and the obvious one, the Anne Frank example, when the Nazis knock and say, "Is Anne Frank here?" You say, "You don't, you don't hedge. <laughs> you don't say, how can I say this?' Or or you don't say, it depends on what you mean is. <laughs> it doesn't even work for the president." <laughs> You just you just say no, and it's it's not um, taking what is not freely given. You know, it's a it's a marker, but really, if someone is dying or drowning, and you want to, there's a coil of rope in the back of a truck. You don't go hunting for the owner of the truck to ask permission. You grab it and you throw the line. Because really what, what that precept is pointing at is our impulses of greed and to manage those in a way that don't make things worse for ourselves and others. Right speech. You know, one of one of one of the people in who I practice with in Davis has you know, what she found was right speech in most cases is just staying silent and not jumping into the fray particularly in, in her family. <laughs> you know. um, so those, those elements are ways of living without evoking, or not falling for the bait of our experience, the pleasant and the, the target of the unpleasant. And effort is is part of it because going with the flow is going with tanha, and that's 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 pretty much our strategy already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're 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 slow learners. We're not stupid, but we're slow. <laughs> um, mindfulness, right? Mindfulness. I, you know, I heard right mindfulness almost always as Meditation, vipassana meditation, but it's mindfulness off the cushion. It's mindfulness walking around, being able to recognize what's going on in experience, being close enough to our experience to see somebody else gets an award, and you go, "That should have been me." You know, you get those things are to notice that rather than just aversion and envy arising and and. sort of blindly acting out on that. So mindfulness is about, you know, we cultivate that and, and practice it when we sit. But it's it's walking around stuff. Same, I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, all the, all the time. Uh, not lost in, in thought, like... Um, I guess from from Marin it would be a different drive, but I think of all the times I drive from Davis to the Bay Area and just miss Vacaville. (laughs) (laughs) It's not anything about Vacaville, (laughs) particularly. Um, It may be more about NPR, which seems to be on the radio, you know, but your mind is off somewhere else. So whether it's, you know, NPR or just the chatter in your mind to not be noticing. So mindfulness. Hmm? You think it's about that? (laughs) Could be. But from here it would be like, uh, you know, you miss 
what, Mill Valley. You just, just drive right through. You know it's there, if anybody asked. It's just like if anybody asks, you know that there's sensation on the soles of your feet at this moment. It's just you're not paying attention to it. Mindfulness is holding the experience. And, and sama samadhi, which is the, which is translated as concentration, and then gets distilled out into a whole separate set of practices, jhana practice. And, and in the context of the Eightfold Path, it seems to me that it's about stability of mindful presence. And those are the things that that enable us to abandon those organically conditioned impulses, the sankaras that arise and lead us to act in ways that... So this is a reformulation in a way, and and at first this is—it's only been a, a couple of weeks that I've been thinking about this, but but now I can hardly think of it the other way. And I'm not even sure what the other way was, but I know that it had to do with, you know, figuring out what dukkha was, and coming up with a definition of it, an operational kind of, so we can say, yep, that's it, and that's not it. You know, how do we recognize dukkha? You know, I remember Ajahn Amaro, no, no, it's Ajahn Pasano was asked, how do you recognize delusion? Which is a good question. How, how do you know when you're deluded? And his response was, well, when you're suffering, you're deluded. You, you can be pretty sure you're deluded if you're suffering. And I thought, well, that's, that's nice. How do you know when you're suffering? You know, it's sort of like, I've been down so long, it looks like up to me, you know. We... <laughs> We uh, um, we often miss our dissatisfaction. One of the one of the uh, one of the elements of our dissatisfaction is almost always a complaint of some kind. So if you want to, you know, complaint is like one of those flags that say scuba divers below. You know. mm-hmm. Complaint of any kind, even a legitimate complaint. It just reflects our dissatisfaction with our experience. But then there's the experience that we don't get. Well, you know, there's dissatisfaction because we don't get what we want. Maybe a complaint. But trying to identify dukkha as a, as the essence of dukkha. But dukkha is a dependently arisen phenomenon that has, you know, so many nuances and flavors depending on uh, the specific experience. So I've, I've started working with, with this by, you know, when I feel that, that contraction of no, uh, or longing to, to notice the unpleasantness and distinguish it from my response. And it allows me to recognize, sometimes I can't do anything about it, um, and that's not uncommon. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite example was when I was, when Apple came out with the Newton, this would have been, what, about 92, 93, and I stood on one side of Moscone Center across Mac Expo and looked across from, and there was the, the, uh, big kiosk where they were selling these things and as I walked across the floor I said, this is what it's like to be lost in desire. <laughs> I could, you know, and I, I, I still have it because <laughs> it was seven or eight hundred dollars I think. So we sometimes can't do anything about it but we can start to recognize it and start to explore it and it gives us a shot. So these, these, this is what I've been working on since I talked to you a couple of weeks ago, sort of a reformulation of the four teachings. And uh, let me just see what you think. Are there any questions? Or yeah, please. Can you say 
something more about the Zen thing? Finger the finger pointing at the moon? <coughs> right. It's a it's a way. It it seems to me that uh, it's a it's a little aphorism that uh, you know general semantics got it as uh, the map is not the territory. You know, the word M-O-T-H-E-R is not your mother. You know, and you can't, you know, if you're dying of thirst, eating W-A-T-E-R, the word, the letters, won't cure your thirst. So the symbols that point in the direction of our experience are not the experience. But we often turn to those symbols, those words, and try to wring meaning out of the symbols rather than use them to point at our experience. We spend a lot of time, we, you know, and I think that tendency to cling to, to want to hold on to uh, an understanding, a concept, uh, a thought, um, is part of our wanting some stability, some security. So we look to the concepts because we think they're stable. Everything else may be changing. So the tendency is to is to look for meaning in the symbols rather than look for look where's the where's the, where are these concepts pointing in our experience? Like looking under the hood of the car, looking distributor cap. When I rebuilt. When my son turned 16, we rebuilt a uh, a VW. Just took it down to nuts and bolts and put it all back together. And by that point, I sort of knew what all the parts were, um, and I could recognize them. But I was—it wasn't just the map in my mind enabling me to do it. I also was looking at the experience as well. So in Zen, they say. Zen is like a finger pointing at the moon. But if you mistake the finger for the moon, if you think the map is the territory, then I I guess the ending of that is what's to be gained, something like that. Um, Often we have way too many fingers and not enough moon. It seems like the teaching of not-self. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not self is is there is a tendency to think that the concepts there's substance in the concepts. There are no nouns in our experience. Nouns exist in language. You know, there's no there are no things anywhere. This you look at this and you say, watch. Right? You know, this. Say this last time in Zen, they you know they say call this a watch. I'll smack you. Say it's not a watch. I'll smack you. What is it? Right. This is why I became a Theravadan Buddhist. <laughs> but but all of the elements that are in this, fifty years ago, weren't watch. Right. I don't even know where this metal came from, you know. But it was probably in a quarry somewhere, and the threads on the watch band were something else, and in 50 years they're going to be something else. But right now we call it a watch. But it's really just a process. Some processes move slowly, some move pretty quickly. And so any time we think there's an entity anywhere, we're mistaking the finger for the moon, because the finger would be the noun. And even distributor cap, a noun pointing at a particular phenomenal experience is you're mistaking it as a noun. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, and so the not-self business is uh, trying to distinguish between that word, self, and what is the experience we're talking about. You know, we relate to the word self, me, mine. But what is that experience? What is that symbol? What is that finger pointing at? Yeah. Can you say something about choice? That's a that's so you're asking the free will question. Um, or uh, are you asking the free will question? <laughs> I, I, uh, no. 
I, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Um, let me just give an example. Okay. Um, which could apply to um, to your wife Tony as well. There's a woman who lives across the street from me who contracted um, uh, something happened to her autoimmune system. She went into paralysis for four months. She was in the hospital in total paralysis being fed through a tube. Uh, nobody has been able to diagnose what's going on with her and at this point the way she stays alive is she goes to the hospital twice a week for a, a full blood transfusion. And at some point, she said, you know, Marty, it really has to do, everything is a matter of choice. Uh, how I respond to what's going on with me is my choice. So, Well, it's interesting. First of all, she didn't choose this illness. No, but how she's responding. Our response, our response may be, may you, it, it's, this, this does seem to me like the free will question. Because the conditions that have brought us to where we are lead us, which include our physiology, it includes our, our understanding that we've developed, lead to certain, um, certain choices. We do want to choose in ways that increase the pleasantness of our experience, decrease the unpleasantness. Often we don't see that we're we're making things worse. So when we scratch an itch, it's it feels like we're relieving the itch. But actually, if you pay attention to it, you're, it's a counter irritant. So you're not actually creating pleasantness. You're just blotting out the unpleasantness. But if you can see clearly, if if you see that clearly, then. Um, the choice may make itself. You know, so it's not so much that we have a choice. The choice sort of makes itself, based on our understanding and the and the condition of our body. And um, now, some you know, th- then then you get the well, who's who's choosing? A guy named Benjamin Libet, who is a neuroscientist at the uh, University of San Francisco did some experiments in the early 90s, and without going into the whole elaborate structure, basically he was able to measure um, the time between when someone makes a decision to do something and the time when one becomes aware of the decision to do something. Sometimes, you know, you're driving along and the car just cuts in on you. You've hit the brake before you even know it. It just happens. Right. What he found was that the the impulse to act occurs maybe a tenth of a second before we become aware that we have decided to act. So the question then becomes, well, what 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 what's free there? Whereas you know the action is happening; it happens by itself. It creates itself, and it's led. Um, some people, including me, to think that that freedom becomes free won't, <laughs> rather than free will. Free won't. You can become aware of that impulse arising, that impulse of tanha in some way or other, or whatever choice it is, and you can, if you recognize that it's going to make things worse, you can just abandon it. It's what the Buddha says, the second teaching is abandoned on and if it's if it's a an impulse that is going to be for the benefit of yourself and others as you understand it genuinely then you can act on it but i guess the idea would be that things that the choices make themselves in effect by appearing as a choice in the first place people say i don't have a choice i have to do this well is there a choice you know the freedom that the Buddha is talking about is the freedom from being a slave to the impulses of desire and aversion that arise in us. That's where the freedom is. 
Are, are we free from that? You know? So it's a free, it's a free won't in, this, in a sense. That's my understanding. And if it's helpful, you know. Okay. Anything else? Well, thank you guys so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.